just a little bit of context from last week. So last week we were in chapter 13. Chapter 13 um, is really the beginning of this last night of Jesus' um, life before he goes to the cross. And he begins the night by washing the disciples' feet, um, showing them this servant heart that he has. And then uh, he really starts to tell them some things. He tells Peter that he's going to deny him and so forth. And then we move into this next part. And um, basically, I, I called today's sermon the Q&A because the disciples start asking Jesus some questions, things that they're curious about, concerned about, and Jesus is answering the questions. And so we're going to see, uh, let's just read the first verse here, right here, John 14, 1. Let not your heart be troubled. So everything that Jesus is going to say here in this chapter is so that his disciples' hearts will not be troubled. Jesus is encouraging the hearts of the disciples here. He's comforting them. And he wants them to be comforted, to not be troubled, to have faith because they're about to witness some crazy stuff going down. They're going to see Judas betray him. They're going to see Jesus on the cross. They're going to see their own weakness and that they are cowards and they are going to run. They're going to bail. And Jesus is setting them up saying, hey, I want you to not be troubled. I'm doing a great work. And then in this, Jesus is going to really give us some amazing stuff about heaven, about the Trinity, about the Father, about the Son, about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, about heaven. Like, there's a lot in this passage, a lot of really, really good stuff. So, let's read this first passage. We're going to read the first four verses. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house uh, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know. And the way, you know. Okay, so as I said, um, let not your heart be troubled. I think Jesus would say the same thing as Melissa was praying here a few moments ago to each one of us. Let not your heart be troubled. If you want, there is no shortage of things that will make your heart be troubled. If you want to choose to think that way, if you want to put your focus that way, there is no shortage of suffering. There is no shortage of pain. There is no shortage of disappointment. There is no shortage of evil in this world. If you want to think about it, if you want to focus on it, let me tell you right now, you could be depressed for the rest of your life. Just read the news. Like I had to turn off my news notifications on my phone. I don't know about you guys, but it was just far too depressing. And I find myself oftentimes like, like what, why is it that our eyes look for the worst story in the news? right? There are so many things to be troubled. And then now as a parent, there's always these stories about an abduction of a little girl or like some like psychopath stepfather who murders a baby with a baby wife, like crazy stories like that. I mean, what the heck? Like I just read that last week, but that's what I'm saying. There's no shortage of things in this world to be disappointed about. There's no shortage of things to be troubled about. But Jesus here, as he's about to go to the cross and they're about to see their own personal weaknesses and be ashamed as disciples, Jesus is going to tell them all the things he tells them here in this passage. Don't let your heart be troubled. 
You see that it's, it's a choice, though? Let your heart not be troubled. He's telling them, you have a decision to make there. We have a decision on how we view the world. Then Jesus tells them that in the Father's house there are many mansions and that he's going to this place to prepare a place for them, each one of them individually. And then he's like, I will come again and receive you to myself. So he's saying, I'm going to prepare a place. I will come back. I will receive you to myself. I will take you there. And he says, um, the way you know, okay? So let's, let's talk about heaven. I feel like we just don't talk about heaven enough, do we? Like, when was the last time you just had a good, solid conversation with somebody about heaven? When, when was that? When was the last time you just imagined it and thought about it? And I know the scriptures say that it's far beyond anything we can imagine or ever dream or think of. Right? We know that it's going to be so much better, but let's, let's talk about it anyways, because there are some things that we do know about it. Okay, here's a question. Where do you go when you die? All right, do you know where you go when you die? Do you go to heaven? Do you go to paradise? Okay, so I've been, this is stuff I've been reading a lot, so I'm kind of excited about it. I've just been studying a lot more. Um, uh, and so for the Jews, they were mostly concerned with the resurrection of the body and the resurrected, glorified new kingdom that the Messiah, that God would bring, okay? This is their focus. So the ultimate goal, goal for the Christian, the ultimate place that we're, we're looking forward to is not a spiritual kind of uh, place where you're floating around in a spiritual world on the clouds with cherubs, babies, and diapers playing harps. That is not the final dwelling place of Christians. The final dwelling place of Christians is our resurrected bodies, and the terms seem to be the same matter that we are made up of right now, we'll get to that in a second, resurrected, glorified, and in a new heavenly kingdom on earth. Heaven is not just a spiritual place, but it is a spiritually physical place. It's where heaven and earth meet. It's where the physical and the spiritual are connected and intertwined perfectly. So we have a physical resurrection that we are looking forward to. And that will happen when Jesus returns. He will glorify us in a moment of time. And we will be glorified. Our bodies will be raised. Okay, so how are our bodies raised if we're decomposed, right? Well, listen, I don't think that it's any problem for God to know which atoms were yours, okay? Like, I don't think that's any problem for God. Now, it was a problem in the mind of, of some of the, like, medieval church and stuff like that. So they thought cremation was just the worst possible thing because how's God going to find your body <laughs> to resurrect you, okay? But we know that, you know, God... He holds all things together. He knows which atoms are yours. He's going to resurrect you from the same matter that you were, but he's going to be in a new glorified way, okay? Uh, I personally don't want to be cremated. <laughs> I don't. I've told Melissa that. So if I die and she cremates me, that's against my wishes, okay? <laughs> I want to be uh, buried, okay? What if I, if I die in a fire, then I guess I... <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so it's a, heaven is a spiritual and physical place, but right now when people, um, the people who are dead, where are they? Jesus said to, them, uh, to the, 
thief on the cross today, you will be with me in paradise. So those who are dead right now are not in the final kingdom. That has not yet been revealed. The final heavenly kingdom where all things are glorified, made new and perfect, nobody is there yet. But they're in a paradise place right now, a waiting place where they are in the presence of God perfectly um, in union with him. But I believe from, from reading scripture such as 1 Corinthians 15 and so forth, and 1 Thessalonians 4, John, um, yeah, 1 Thessalonians 4 would be a good one. Uh, they are not yet in their new and glorified bodies. They're in a spiritual place waiting for that day where we are all resurrected and glorified together, okay? That's where I believe people are right now. But I would say this, the ultimate goal for the believer is, of course, that resurrection. That's the place that we we have that as a final destination. But all of it, whether it's today, paradise when you die, or in the ultimate glorification in new heaven and new earth, all of it is about the presence of God. That's what it is about. It's all about being in the presence of God. So heaven is, is, is less about the details and more about the presence of God. And the good news of the gospel is, yes, we get to be in our glorified bodies with God, in the presence of God for all of eternity, never dying, never having pain or sorrow or anything like that. But the good news of the gospel is also that the presence of God is with us here and now today. We have begun to experience here and now today as believers the presence of God, which means that we are experiencing a taste of heaven, of eternity. We're going to see that Jesus makes it abundantly clear and chooses to speak more here on the current truth that the presence of God is with us and in us than he does actually going into a lot of detail about heavenly things, about the things to come. He gives them this short thing here, hey, don't worry about it, I'm going somewhere, I'm preparing a place for you, and eventually I'll come back, and I'm gonna bring you to that place, and it's gonna be great, okay? But then he spends the rest of the time comforting their souls, telling them to not let their hearts be troubled because the Holy Spirit, his presence, the Father's presence are gonna be with them in their hearts, in their, in their bodies as a dwelling place. The presence of God is here now. So, One more thing before we jump on. So if you are curious about what your heavenly body is going to be like, read the passages where Jesus has already been resurrected. It was Christ's same physical body, but now in a resurrected, glorified form. He's doing stuff like phasing through walls, teleporting. Maybe one of the verses suggests that he's able to shapeshift. Um, He's glowing and he's flying. So my understanding is if that's a glorified body and we're told that we're going to be made in his likeness, we're going to be able to phase through walls, we're going to be able to fly, teleport, shift, and we're going to be, have this countenance like a sun, like we're going to be glowing bodies, okay? So that's one kind of image that you often see in imagery of heaven is glowing. That one is accurate, okay? You're going to be glowing, um, which is a compliment even today, right? We say, oh, you're glowing. Like, <laughs> you look great. You, something different about you. You have this glowing aura about you. Well, in heaven, that's going to be literal and physical. Now, I don't believe that like, it's going to be magic. 
like again, I believe it's a physical universe that our glorified bodies are moving and going through. And so it'll be, I would say it would almost be scientific in the way that we'd be able to phase through walls, fly, and all that stuff. There will be a physical answer to the reasons why we're able to do those things. Like, it's not just magic, it's not just spiritual, this is stuff that you can do in a physical world that still has laws, where God always has laws to bring chaos, to bring chaos into order, okay? So that's what I believe about that, and if you have more questions about it, I'd love to talk more about it afterwards, and I can show you all the passages why I believe it. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Okay, so... Thomas, kind of a follow-up to what Jesus said there, he's like, hey, you guys know the way. He's like, wait a second, Jesus, I don't, I'm not sure we do know the way. Like, you're going somewhere that you said that we, we can't follow you, so how are we going to know how to get there? And Jesus says to him, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then also he's saying, uh, if you had known me, you would know my Father, and from now on you know him and have seen him. So he's claiming this oneness with the Father, and he's going to continue that thought throughout the rest of the passage here, so we'll get to that more. But let's talk about the way, the truth, the life. Jesus is the way. He is the narrow path. When the Bible talks about this path that is narrow, right? Many can go on the wide path. Many can go through the wide gate, but Jesus is that narrow path. He is that singular one way to the Father. So Jesus is the path. The Bible says that he is the door. He is the gate. He is the way. But listen, he's also the truth. So all knowledge is found in him. All truth is found in him. It's interesting, Thomas is asking about the way, but Jesus gives him a bonus too, right? He gives him a bonus too, truth and life as well. So look at truth, Jesus is the truth. You know, it's interesting, we often talk about the authority of the Bible. Um, and technically, that's a little bit misleading to say that the Bible has authority because it's Jesus that has the authority and the Bible is the mediator in which we understand the authority of Jesus. The Bible is the mediator that we understand the authority of the Son of God. And it's the mediator in which the Son of God has communicated to us his plans and, and, and everything for our lives. Okay? So the Bible itself is just the words, but the authority is in Jesus. He is the truth. So all knowledge and answers are found in him. And then look at this. Jesus is also the life. He is not just the way and the truth, but he is that final destination for us as believers. He is life. He is life. He is the point of our existence. He's not just the way to life. He is life. And all life is found in him. And there is no true life apart from him. So Paul, when he speaks in 1 Corinthians 15, he tells us that to be away from the body is to go to be with Jesus, to be with the Lord. He is the life. He is the way, but he is that destination as well. This is a more serious statement for the Christian than we often understand, right? 
we say things like, my life is baseball. Okay. My family is my life. We say things like that, but literally, life is found in Jesus. He's not a hobby. He's not an interest we have. He is life, according to what he says here. He is the destination of all purpose and existence. That's amazing, isn't it? Now, so Thomas asked this first question about the way. That's why I call it the Q&A. Now Philip is going to ask a question. He said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Now, I believe that Philip is sincerely humble in his question here, in his request. But it is unintentionally offensive to the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus just told him in the verse before that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And he expects the disciples to take that in faith. And Philip, though I believe sincere and probably humble in his question, is saying, Lord, okay, like heaven is great, all that, but if we would just see the Father, that would be amazing. And it's unintentionally offensive to Jesus and to the incarnation of Jesus Christ because they are sitting before God in flesh. So Jesus states again what he says here, verse 9. Jesus said to him, and with you so long, and yet you have not known me. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. He's like, come on, Philip. Have you really been following me for three years and you don't get that you are looking at the incarnation of God? The Father is in me. I am in the Father. We are one. You are staring at God in the face, saying, show me the Father. Here he is. Jesus and the Father are one in nature, one in character. Jesus says, if you're not going to believe, at least believe because of the works that I have shown you. He says, haven't you seen the stuff that I have done? The works that I have done prove that I'm operating in the authority of the Father, that you've seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. That's great. And then listen, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father, and whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Greater works than these will he do. I think that that might be one of the hardest verses in the Bible to believe. Because if you read the Gospels, Jesus did some amazing things. How could we possibly do greater things than that? Us, sinners, like here, now. 
How could we possibly do that? But first he says that those who believe in him will do the works that Jesus has done. So regeneration of the believer results in replication of Christ's actions. After all, Christian was a term given to Christians by the secular people, basically just as a joke. You're like a little Christ. They took it as a compliment and ran with it. To be a little Christ. So regeneration results in the replication of Christ's actions. Then beyond that, greater things even than what Christ did while he was on earth can be done by believers today. Now I would say not necessarily miraculous, right? Because here it's not an it's not, it almost seems like it's not an option. Those who are believers, greater works than these he will do. Each one of them, each believer can do greater works than what Jesus did. That's where it gets really, really hard to believe, didn't it? And it's, it's one thing to say, okay, like, okay, maybe Paul did some greater things. He had a longer lifespan than Jesus. He had a longer time to minister. He was able to reach more people. He certainly started more only converted more people than Jesus. So certainly we could say maybe Paul did greater things than Jesus, right? He even did many of the miracles that Jesus did. So yeah, maybe, okay, we could say maybe Paul and a few of the other apostles or, or maybe um, some, some great, like Billy Graham, right? Like preaching to millions of people across the world. Maybe Billy Graham, we could say, could do greater things than Jesus, but certainly not me. So what does it mean? Well, I believe it's not necessarily speaking of the miraculous, but of the work of the cross and the growing of the church. We are a part of this body, and we are a part of something greater, because Jesus planted the seed of the church in his death and resurrection, and we are seeing the pouring out all across this globe, and we are a part of it. So while I do believe there's potential for great miraculous things that individual believers can do, we are all a part of the greater work that is being done by the church, and you have a part to play in it. Every single one of us does. So you can do great, great things if you will view them as great. It's really easy to just view the Christian life as this mundane, boring thing that's not all that great, but God views it as the greatest thing, this great, great work of redeeming God's people to himself, and he's using you to to do it. That is not mundane. It is not boring. Jesus is using you to bring about the kingdom of God. He is using you to redeem souls, to preach the gospel, to bring them in, to feed the body. If we don't see it great, that's on us. If we don't see the significance of the work he's called us to, because we're blind to it, it's not because it's not great. Now, John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. Now, there is a little bit of debate here on whether or not that verse is connected to the ones above it or if it's connected to the ones below it. If you keep, 
Um, so if you love me, keep my commandments. Other translations say you will keep my com- commandments. It's, it's a must. If you love God, you will keep his commandments. So is it connected to verse 12 and 14, or is it connected to 16 and beyond? And there's a lot of debate here on, on where it is, but I believe it's connected to the verses above, and it's all sort of connected as one part of the whole story. So it is connected to both in a certain sense. So look back here at 14 where it says, and whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. I believe the ability to to call upon God in the name of Jesus and see great and mighty things done is connected to our love for him and our obedience to his commandments. But it all is connected to this next part, which is verse 16. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. So I believe it's all connected here. We can call upon God in the name of Jesus, and Jesus will do great and mighty things through us as long as we love him and are willing to obey his commandments. And in order for us to have the ability to do all of that, he sends the helper. And he will abide with us. The spirit of truth. This is the Holy Spirit coming to us. And it's in the Holy Spirit that we can do greater things that we can pray in faith, that we can love God and keep his commandments. It's all in the spirit. He's the helper who helps us do this. He will dwell with you and be in you. This is Jesus saying, because I'm not going to leave you as orphans, comforting them, saying the spirit is coming. A little while longer, And the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You will live also. At that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. See, it's all connected. Like I said, we try to see it too sequentially here, but it's all connected. For the regenerated believer, you pray to the Father in the name of the Son. You will do great things. You will love God. You will keep his commandments. You will receive the Holy Spirit. You will experience a loving relationship, and the Holy Spirit will dwell in you. You will see the Father. You will see the Son. You will have all three of them living inside of you. It's all connected. It's not like you can pick a couple and... And do that. This is all a part of what it means to be the, a regenerated believer, to have God dwelling with you. It's all connected. So there is no option in any of them. If, you have, if you're going to be a Christian, you must have the Holy Spirit. 
If you have the Holy Spirit, you're going to love God and God's going to love you. If you have the Holy Spirit, you will love God. You will obey his commandments. These are not optional things. These are all part of one thing, which is the redemption of your soul, the salvation of you as an individual. It's all connected. It's all a part of one thing. So what day is he talking about? He's talking about the holy indwelling, the parousia, right? Um, But what's amazing is that it's not, though it's technically the Holy Spirit, it practically is God and the Son dwelling in you. The triune Godhead is dwelling in you. Though it technically is the Holy Spirit, Jesus is saying the Father and myself will manifest to you. Like, we are going to be there. We're going to dwell with you. And so sometimes I think Christians especially in the Trinity, get caught up in the, in the well, what, is that part the Holy Spirit, or was this the Son, or was that the Father? Which, which role? Who do we pray to? Do we pray to the Father is it in the name of the Son? Do we ever pray to the Holy Spirit? Do we ever pray to Jesus? How does that all work? They are one. They are three. They are one. And so even Jesus seems here to mix them up. He's talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but then he's saying it's the Father in me dwelling in you. So is it technically the Holy Spirit? Yes, but practically it's God and the Son as well. So I, I, I tell people, like, don't get over caught up in which name you're praying to. And, 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 and if people say, like, Jesus is living in my heart, it's not literal, but technically it's the Holy Spirit dwelling in, in them. But of course, you can say Jesus is dwelling in my heart because that is true. Does that make sense? Okay, so we see another question now to them. Judas, not Iscariot. So, by the way, there's two disciples named Judas. He's also known as Thaddeus, um, and sometimes he's called Judas, the son of James. This is different than Judas, um, the Iscariot. Uh, he asks him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? So, again, another follow-up question to Jesus teaching here. And then Jesus answered him and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. So again, Jesus jumbles it all up, right? He jumbles it all up. And they're saying, how will you manifest Uh, to us and not to the world. What is that going to look like? He's talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit because they're saying, if you're coming back in the clouds and everybody's going to see it, so what are you talking about specifically here on this day, this moment where we're going to have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit manifested to us but not to the whole world? Jesus is clarifying again, it's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, all three are dwelling in us. But did you see it right before that? He says again, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. After the Protestant Reformation, the reformers, I believe, were so 
anti the works message that was being preached, penances and you can buy your salvation literally with money, you can buy your dead grandpa's salvation if you pay enough, get him out of purgatory. These are the types of teachings that were all centered around really getting money out of poor people, right? And so they were so against that, we moved away from that in a very good way to a belief in its by faith we are saved alone, by grace not of works, lest any man should boast, right? That became the theme here. But sometimes, because of that strong move and the fear of ever going back to a works-based faith, we start to think of the word works or actions as like a cuss word, like a bad thing to say as a Christian. Like, you don't talk about works in a Protestant church, right? You don't ever talk about that. But James, he says, faith without works is dead, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. You will keep my commandments. You will keep my word. And it is, in fact, not optional for the believer. You must keep his commandments if you love him. Now, it is not to earn your salvation. We know that is true. The Bible is abundantly clear about that. But the Bible is also abundantly clear, clear that if you are regenerated, your life looks different because the Spirit of God which is manifesting the Father and the Son inside of you, is dwelling in you, and you don't do a lot of that same stuff anymore. You are being transformed day by day and being regenerated and made new, and the kingdom of God is dwelling in you. It doesn't leave a lot of room for carnal Christianity. It doesn't leave a lot of room for lukewarm Christians who are just concerned about a fire insurance card. I just want to say to show Jesus when I get to the gate that I will like, I did the prayer, let me in. That's not Christianity. The Jews were never concerned with just where they go with when they died. The Jews, the context that he's speaking to, these men, the teachings that they had grown up with was that God was going to make their kingdom, his kingdom here on earth among them and that they needed to live in a way that was worthy of his kingdom to be with them. And it's the same context that Jesus is speaking in, that his kingdom is here and now. That's why Jesus in his, uh, the Lord's Prayer says, pray as, as it is in heaven, let it be on earth, right? That's the idea, as it is in heaven on earth. Jesus always said the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, therefore. It's here, it's now so for the believer, it is not just about where you go when you die. It is about before you die, the manifestation of God in you. That is crazy. And in Western culture, we have abandoned a lot of that teaching. I heard one teacher, uh, I don't agree with everything he teaches, but particularly on the kingdom of God. I love his teaching. His name's N.T. Wright, and he speaks a lot about this. That is about the kingdom of God being manifested among believers, and we must see the significance of it. And he shows, even in the creeds and in all the doctrinal statements, we talk about the birth of Jesus and, and as a virgin, and then we skip everything he taught and move over to his death, burial, and resurrection, and that one day he will return. And we skip all of the chapters in the middle of each of the Gospels where Jesus is telling us what it looks like for the believer to live a Christ-like life. All of the teachings. 
right? It's so easy for us to, to just basically be concerned about your salvation moment and then where you go when you die. And God is concerned right now for you about what your life looks like because he wants to manifest himself and manifest the kingdom of God in you today and in the world around you. And then more than that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go on a little bit of a tangent just for a second, okay? Because God is dwelling in us, we have that same authority that was given to Jesus over the earth. Jesus has authority over the earth. So if we don't like things the way they are on this earth, we change them as Christians. That's why we make disciples. If we see a lot of brokenness, we make more disciples to fix the brokenness. Now, of course, we will not complete the work because it will be completed only when Jesus comes back. But we are in process of making the kingdom of God here on earth manifesting it here on earth. And so we need to start asking ourselves, what would it look like if Jesus was in control of my, my workplace? What would it look like if Jesus was in control of my home? What would it look like if Jesus was in charge of my neighborhood? What would it look like if Jesus was in charge of our city and our government? What would that look like? What would it really look like? And the answer is we need to look at what Jesus taught, particularly, you know, you could look at the Sermon on the Mount and things like that. And then as a believer who has Jesus' authority and God manifested in you, you start manifesting the kingdom of God around you. We live a very fatalistic life as Christians way too often. Well, the world sucks. I guess we just wait till we're dead. Ugh. There's no hope for politics. I mean, we might as well not vote or do anything. There's, there's no hope for my neighbor. That guy is way too far gone. I'll just let him go to hell. I'll go to heaven. It'll be all right. Like, whatever. Like, we are just too fatalistic in our thinking as Christians. And it is not acceptable because it means we are ignoring everything that Jesus taught. Because Jesus certainly taught about our salvation, and he certainly taught about our glorification with him in the end times. But he taught a lot more about how we manifest the kingdom of God here and now. And so as believers, we need to be more concerned with obeying Jesus, letting the Holy Spirit transform us, and more than that, transform the world around us, and walk in the authority that Jesus gave us. Are you with me? Well, we cannot live fatalistic lives as Christians anymore. We just can't do it. It's not acceptable to Jesus. We need to read the Sermon on the Mount. We need to read the teachings of Jesus, and then we need to go apply that to our life around us. And when Christians are doing that on a large scale, you better believe that we can change nations. We have before in history. We've shaped entire continents at times. We've seen revival in the masses when Christians in a large scale working together as the body of Jesus are doing greater things than Jesus ever did when he was on earth. Because we can work together and we can make it happen. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world do I give it to you. 
Let not your heart be troubled again, he says it. Neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. So Jesus begins to reiterate much of what he has said already. A few unique things in this passage here is that the Holy Spirit will teach us all things. Lord, what do I, how in the world am I supposed to love that person? How in the world am I supposed to shape my workplace to look more like the kingdom of God? How in the world am I supposed to do these things? Rely on the Holy Spirit. He will teach you how. Also, he will bring remembrance all the things that Jesus has said to you. Let the Holy Spirit work on you. He will bring about teaching and remembrance of Christ's teaching. It's also, by the way, how the apostles wrote scripture was because the Holy Spirit was bringing remembrance to them of all the things that Jesus said. It's the last passage here. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me but that the world may know that I love the Father and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. Okay, so chapter 14 is this final Q and A with his disciples before they leave the upper room and are now making their way to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is going to pray and ultimately um, he's going to be arrested. So um, Jesus tells them all the things that they need to know about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, look it up, like where we're going time. He walks out. So the thing they needed to know about the coming of the Holy Spirit before they left this room um, was that he would indwell them, transform them, that the Holy Spirit would manifest the presence of God, the Father and the Son inside of them, be with them. And then Jesus even says that he has been commanded from the Father to go and to follow his actions, which we know is ultimately to the cross. So, we need the Holy Spirit so, so, so much. We need the Holy Spirit. Let our hearts not be troubled. We need the Holy Spirit for that. We want to manifest the kingdom of God here and today. We want to see lives transformed, neighborhoods transformed, cities transformed. We need the Holy Spirit to do all of it. And we do see, I, I briefly spoke of this last week, but we see the disciples are different after they have the Holy Spirit, aren't they? Before the Holy Spirit, they're a bunch of fools. Jesus will say something and then they ask a question as if they hadn't heard what he just said, right? They just aren't getting it. It's not clicking for them. Yet when the Holy Spirit comes, those men are so transformed that each one of them dies for the gospel. Each one of them goes out and preaches. And if you look at a map of where they went, they went to the ends of the earth, at least what was thought of as the ends of the earth at that time. They were each going in a different direction, and we see that that is where they died. You can just kind of draw a big circle around the most populated part of the world at that time, and they went as far as they could to share the good news of Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit. 
I talked about the fatalistic view that we have as Christians, and there's another view that we often have as Christians, and then it's just that of apathy, just that of apathy. We get into a rhythm of life where we are operating outside of the power of the Holy Spirit, and we're so accustomed to it and used to it that we just don't think anything of it. But it is not the type of life that we are called to live. We are not called to a mundane, boring, ministryless life. We are called to great, great, great things. Things that Jesus himself said are greater than the works he did. Do you believe that? So I would encourage you, read the Sermon on the Mount. Start in, start in Matthew 5 and work from there. The Sermon on the Mount. And say, Lord, which of these, how many of these am I not manifesting in my own personal life in the life around me? And allow the Holy Spirit to work on you, to teach you, to bring remembrance to you so that you will see the kingdom of God manifested here and now. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for everything, God. Thank you for um, not leaving us as orphans. We are the children of God. And you did not abandon us Though you are physically somewhere else, spiritually by your Holy Spirit, you are in this room right now. Spiritually, Lord, you are manifesting yourself and the Father to us right now. If we desire to see the Father, we simply just need to focus on you, to look at your teaching and to look within our own soul, knowing that the Holy Spirit indwells us and that you are with us. Holy Spirit, manifest yourself to each one of our hearts and minds right now. Lord, do not, please do not let any person walk out here without experiencing more of the manifestation of your presence. Lord, forbid us from walking out of this building and living a life that is not manifesting the kingdom. Lord, rebuke us harder than we've ever been rebuked by, by you. Convict us so that we would walk out a life that is worthy to say that it is a kingdom life, that we are children of the kingdom. Lord, for anybody who has experienced discouragement, pain, sorrow, disappointment, any of that right now, Lord, I pray that we would think of things the way that you have taught us to think of them. Lord, that we would not let our hearts be troubled by temporary things going on now, but that we would know that we are experiencing the kingdom of heaven here and now, and our final destination is eternally to be in your presence, to be glorified, and to be free completely. Lord Jesus, help us think that way. Help us not let our hearts be troubled. Thank you.